So this sermon, better? Okay. This, this sermon is not exactly your typical sermon, frankly. Um, it's going to be a bit of a history lesson, a bit of a political science lesson, a bit of a current events. And before I'm done, you'll understand why I picked the gospel reading and the, the call to worship. There's a meaning for it, a reason for it. But over you know, the past few months, we've talked about how the church is going through a period where we're like the first century church. You know, we have a lot of, a lot of detractors, uh, polytheism in many ways. Um, it just, it's not the world we grew up in, basically. And I thought about it for a while, and um, there's a reason for things. You know, nothing happens in a vacuum. You know, there's, there's always something that, that trips, trips something to, to cause something else. You know, there's a, pro a progression of things. So if you bear with me, we'll talk a little bit about some, like I say, current events and stuff, and maybe things you do know, things you don't know. You may say, man, that guy's crazy. That never happened. But everything, every, everything here, if, if I can't prove it empirically, you can connect the dots and find it, basically. Um, so like, good, like, like most good history lessons, uh, we're going to start out. Um, yep. 1815. There you go. Thank you. Uh, what happened in 1815? Anybody, any history buffs here that know uh, a few things? Well, the Battle of Waterloo, like it says there. I kind of gave it away. Uh, and what do you know about the Battle of Waterloo? Anybody? Nobody? Somebody? What's that? Napoleon, right. Uh, who did he fight? The British guy. Nobody? Who, who was the British? Wellington. Okay. And the interesting thing about, about, uh, about the battle was, if you're, if you're a geek about that kind of thing, um, Wellington had friends, family, near Waterloo. It's in Belgium. And as a kid, he'd, he'd visited it. He'd been there a lot as a kid. So he knew the terrain. He knew the ground. And he knew where he could, where he could hide troops and be out of sight and... and uh, you know, use the, the ground to his advantage if, if ever there was a battle there. And so when he had the opportunity, he lured Napoleon to Waterloo and had his troops laid out. And he, uh, he waited because there was four days of rain, I think it was. And the ground was just soaking wet, wet sloppy. And Napoleon had a deal where he didn't, when he fired artillery, he didn't fire into the troops or this way into the troops. He would skip the balls across the ground and he could take out a whole line of enemy soldiers. Well, Wellington waited for like four days of rain, and when the rain's over, he shows himself to Napoleon, Napoleon attacks, he fires his artillery across the ground, and it goes thud and sticks. So Napoleon, Wellington had very little casualties from artillery. That was Napoleon's strong suit, and he, he kind of pulled that card out of his hand. So in history books, Wellington won, but in actuality, that guy won. That guy's Nathan Meyer Rothschild. And the way he won is he financed the British Army. And he figured out after the, the, the battle, of, battle of Waterloo, he made a ton of money because you gotta, you got to feed the troops, you got to buy arms, you got to do everything. you got to put an army in the field. It's a lot of money. And he figured out, well, if I help the British out, 
I can help the other side out too, so, so I back both sides, I make more money. I can do the next slide. And to this day, the Rothschilds in banking are still around. Here's a, a slide for, about uh, Jacob Rothschild. You, know, you can read it. It says, my family is worth 50, $500 trillion. We own nearly every central bank in the world. We finance both sides of every war since Napoleon. Uh, we own your news, your media, your oil, and your government. And you probably never heard of me. That's probably true. Well, they're still around. They're still doing it. And they, they're worth tons and tons of money. They, they have most of the money in the world, actually. And if you, if you think about it, uh, if you've got one, one family running things like that, you know, where it says we own, we own your media. It's kind of curious to me that you turn the news on, any station, and they talk about any major news event, the words are almost verbatim. The report uses the same trip words. Well, how does that happen? If these, if these companies are in competition with each other, they all say the same thing. Well, where does that come from? Well, I got a, I got a hunch that you know, there's more, more behind the scenes than you think. The, um, and owning the central banks, so the Federal Reserve is a central bank, okay? And it's a pretty, cool a pretty cool deal if you're the banker. And to give an example of it, uh, Barry, you're now a country in the middle of nowhere called Barrystan. Okay, and you come to me, you know, and you say I need cash to run my my country. Okay, so I give you whatever value it is, you know, not in dollars, whatever whatever value, whatever exchange you, you need or whatever, and I let you print uh, berry bucks to run your country. Okay, but I loan the money to you. I own the money. I loan I loan it to you, and you got to pay interest on that. Now, if I own all the money, uh, how do you pay interest to me? With what? Money I loaned you, right? So you can never pay me back. You can never get out of debt. That's why he's worth $500 trillion, which is pretty interesting. It's a cool, a cool, cool gig if you can get it, I guess. Um, but the, um, so you have these horribly wealthy families, and they have an agenda, and their agenda is pretty much socialism. And they worked in Europe for the most part, and Europe was kind of soft, soft socialism anyway. So, you know, if, if, if again, Barry Stan, if I go to you and say, hey, I want you to enact this policy to do a certain thing, if I own you, you're going to do it, basically. Makes sense, right? Well, so Europe was kind of under the, under the thumb of uh, the bankers for the longest time, and the gold ring for these guys, if you, if you, own, if you own everything, what, do you, what else do you want? You want more, okay? Well, the more is the United States. And the brass ring for these guys has always been the United States. And they tried several ways of doing it. Um, clear back from the revolution to current time, we've had central banks been run by outside entities. Uh, you can go to the next slide. There you go. Thank you. Uh, Things changed in, in, in 1963, and with the assassination of Kennedy, if you, you can go and look this up yourself, you can find, you can find the charts and graphs and numbers. Uh, deficit, deficit spending for, for the country went through the roof after Kennedy. Um, the, government, the government became more secular. Um, it took prayer out of schools. And this, you know, uh, this happened in 63, and I was in first grade in 64 at the Five Points Elementary 
school. It was the first year that had no prayer in school, and I recall my, my teacher, you may, yeah, Dixon, yeah, uh, talking about it, but not praying in school now. So the big, the big change happened. An interesting thing also, uh, the example I have there is that all the wars we were involved in after 63 all became longer and more expensive. You know, World War II lasted four years and it, it solved problems. Uh, Vietnam lasted 19 years, didn't solve much at all. Gulf War, eight years. Afghanistan, 19 years, sold, uh, solved nothing. But it made the bankers rich. If you gotta buy arms and, and put, a, put an army in the field, somebody's gonna make a lot of money. Um, now there's a lot of, you know, these are the facts. You know, around the Kennedy thing, there's all kind of speculation and theories and conspiracy theories and whatnot. But these, these facts exist. This is what happened. This is like empirical evidence or empirical data that things did change after Kennedy. Um, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll go here just for a second. This is kind of interesting to me. But there have been at least four presidents in our history that wanted to get rid of central banking. Okay, uh, Jackson, Andrew Jackson did in 1833. Actually, he, got, he closed the bank down. And three other presidents tried to do the same thing. It was Kennedy, or I'm sorry, Lincoln, Kennedy, and Reagan. What three things do those guys have in common? Hmm? I can't hear who. Attempts. Yeah, uh, they, they didn't kill Reagan, but the other two guys, yeah. What a coincidence, okay? Not saying that's what, what happened, but it, uh, the facts are that these guys went over to the central bank and bad things happened to them. Um, so if we move to the current day, you've had these bankers working behind the scenes uh, all this time, and the modern iteration of you know, the, the European banks, Rothschilds, other families also, is the, uh, you can go to the next slide, if you would. There you go. The modern iteration, iteration of what they're doing is the World Economic Forum. And the World Economic Forum, um, what, they, what they want, or what they're all about, basically, is worldwide socialism. Um, and they're anti, they're, they're anti the Judeo-Christian values that we have. Um, and they announce it on their websites. Now, if you read their website, it's uh, you know, a thousand pages of legalese and, and, and trip words, basically, or you know, coded words. Uh, but they talk about things like uh, stockholder capitalism. And what stockholder capitalism is, it's a company that, any company that has uh, ties to the government to meet a certain uh, goal, okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's fascism. When you have the government and, the, and, and business working together, it's, it's fascism. And we see examples of it right now with you know, all the news now about Twitter and all that where you know, the CIA and FBI had backdoor, backdoor into, into these, these social media companies to have an agenda, to, to, to um, uh, censor people and whatnot. Well, that's, that's fascism. And, and these guys are all about it, basically. Go to the next slide, if you would. Uh, here's a happy face there. Isn't it great? Uh, that's Klaus Schwab. He's the president of the uh, World Economic Forum. And there's a quote there by him, and it says, the pandemic represents a rare, narrow window of opportunity 
to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Well, what needs reset? Uh, to push their agendas. Um, and they push a one-world government, one financial system. Uh, he's quoted as having said that by, t t uh, by 2030 that you'll own nothing and be happy. Well, how do you own nothing? It means you live there, at, you, you, you take the handouts they, they give you. Um, it's a dangerous idea. It's, uh, again, it's socialism. Um, it's called the Great Reset. And they also are after, they want zero population growth. Um, all the things are sort of, uh, and uh, work against uh, uh, you know, political freedom, basically. The next slide. I'm getting to a point, actually, here. Bear with me. <laughs> the next slide. This guy here is uh, Yuval Noah Harari. I got a book I got a book he wrote. Actually, he wrote about three books, and they're all unreadable. Um, if you want to borrow this one, you can. I'll give it to you if you want it, actually. But uh, what he's all about, what he's all about is um, he's anti-God. Uh, man is obsolete. Uh, the, the majority of uh, the population are useless eaters. Uh, he wants total, surve total surveillance of everything you do. He wants to put chips in you so that they can monitor what your body's doing. Like total, total surveillance. Um, every aspect of life, basically. And I have a quote that, uh, that, uh, from him, and you can look all this stuff up yourself, but he has a quote, and it says, the one I picked out is, you could never convince a monkey to give you a banana by promising him limitless bananas after death in a monkey heaven. Well, you have to think that through a little bit. And the follow-up is, how do you cause people to believe in an imagined order such as Christianity, democracy, or capitalism? Well, first, you never admit the order is imagined. So what he's saying is, if, you're, if you believe in God and you're religious and you're, if you're a Christian, you're not as bright as a monkey, is what he's saying, basically. And this guy has a lot of sway. He's a, the chief advisor to uh, uh, Schwab. Um, He's touted as the prophet, they call him. Uh, and he, he, he speaks at a lot of highbrow colleges and whatnot. Um, and people swear by his ideas. They think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. I think he's a dangerous man. And, and what makes him so dangerous is that people listen to him. Uh, it's kind of evil, actually. But this is what this is what... You know, the European banks and what are pushing, okay? And they've had some success, obviously. They've, uh, they've decided to take and, and uh, kind of attack the United States from the inside out. And they've put tons of money into installing political leaders in places. And, and you'll see, you know, the whole idea about defund the police. It all came from the WEF. Um, just a lot of things, if you pay attention to it, they've stacked the deck in many ways against you know, the church, against us. And one of the ways they're doing it is they're attacking our kids. There you go. Uh, attack on kids. The, uh, 
the latest version of this is the fluid gender stuff, you know, where you have, uh, you have drag queen reading time at, high, at elementary schools. Uh, you have, you know, the gender reassignment for grade school kids. Um, go to the next slide if you want to. There's Rachel Levine, 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 whatever. And I got this from a Idaho newspaper. Oh, no, sorry, a Virginia, a Virginia newspaper online. And I won't read the whole thing, but the last sentence is, uh, Levin insists that we do not need state laws and actions that dictate principles of transgender medical care by us, the, pe the pediatric, ex the pediatric expert experts. The us she's referring to is government. So what she's, he, she's saying that we don't need to, we don't need oversight. We can do what we know best. Well, in, 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 in all logic, uh, you can't drive to your 16. You can't buy cigarettes or alcohol until you're what, 18 or 21, whatever it is. Uh, but yet you can trust a, a first grader or grade school kid to decide what gender they want to be. And if the parents get between the kid and the state, you're in hot water. And this is nothing more than, than, than state-sponsored child abuse. These are one of the things we're looking at. Uh, where's the church? Where's the church in this? What do you do about it? I mean, this is this is pure evil. There's no way around it. Um, so if you got kids that you're <clears throat> you're messing up, you know, messed up kids grow into messed up adults. So in a few years, you're going to have a really messed up world, basically. You know, what do you what do you do with those people? What what happens to them? Well, they can either become the Surgeon General, or they can steal luggage from airports, I guess. Yeah, but uh, that was a joke that no one got, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's 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 one attack we're facing, and we've we've faced another attack for the past you know, since the mid '70s. You can change slides if you want to. There you go. Uh, this has been talked to death by a lot of people. Um, but what nobody sees, I think, is the abortion as an industry. Yeah. You know, let, morals aside, uh, this, this information came from the, uh, uh, the Compass Care in Buffalo and in Rochester, New York. Uh, the cost of an abortion can range from 350 to 650 for chemical abortion. Uh, for a surgical abortion, it's 600 to 2,000. Yeah, 600 to 2,000. Now, that's in the front door. On the back door, uh, if they sell tissue samples to research centers, uh, a tiny sample, the example here is a liver sample, it sells for $830, $830 average. Well, you can get a lot of samples from you know, one fetus. You know, there's, there's been estimates that you know, one, one fetus makes about at least $150,000 for the, the abortion center. Well, it, this is the business. And that's that's why it's uh, that's that's why the the, the pro uh, the pro choice crowd is so vocal. It's a lot of money. They're making a lot of money on this, and they don't want to get it messed up. But that's kind of the truth of it. And if you if you look at scripture, you know there, there have been there have been Christians that I've talked to that said, well, the Bible really never addresses abortion. It doesn't talk about it. Well, you know Matthew 18, you know Jesus says that. If anyone causes one of these little ones, uh, those who believe in me, to stumble, King James says to be offended, you know, which I think abortion is kind of offensive. 
to stumble, it'd be better for him that a large millstone be hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because these things that cause people to, 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 to stumble, such things must come, but woe to the person who they come through. Uh, see that you do not, do not, in verse 10 it says, uh, see that you do not despise with these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. That should give you pause. You know, uh, you know the, the whole idea of guardian angels actually comes from that, I, guess, I think. But, you know, God's pretty much, you know, Jesus is pretty much uh, adamant that, you know, you don't mess with the kids. And we're doing that. More pointedly, in Jeremiah 7, I won't read the whole thing for you. There's three pages here or so. You can look it, look it up. But I'll, I'll just tell you the story that the Israelites, or Israel, was practicing child sacrifice. And in verse 31, the, the, the line that jumps out at me is, um, this is God saying, this is something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So you gotta think about, okay, <laughs> if you can do something so heinous that God, that God didn't think of it, uh, again, that should give you pause. You know, this is this is something you don't don't want to be involved in. Um, and then the, the passage goes on to say that you know that the the valley of uh, Ben Hinnom, Hinnom uh, where the sacrifice was happening, uh, we call the valley of slaughter. And he tells the uh, he tells Israel that it'll be that there'll be there'll be no no more room for their dead, and it'll be it'll, carry, it'll be carried off by the birds, basically. So God's serious about how we treat kids. And, and I'm, I'm glad to say that you know, the, the, the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade and took it back to the states. And had to, it's a state decided. It's no longer a national thing. It's more of a state thing. And most states, a lot of states, were pretty, were pretty stringent on abortion laws. Um, you can go to the next slide if you want to. Here's a, here's a twist. Um, after, the, after the Supreme Court rolled it back to the states, um, in Idaho, had a, a fairly uh, stringent, restrictive uh, law on abortion, the uh, Satanic Temple filed a lawsuit over Idaho's abortion laws. Under the argument of religious freedoms and, and violations, the temple, the temple said the state's abortion ban prohibited members of the temple from engaging in the Satanic abortion ritual. Let that sink in for a second, okay? The satanic church uses abortion as a sacrament. So if you find yourself wavering, if you're a Christian, find yourself wavering on the idea about abortion, you say, well, you know, there's bad parenting, there's bad homes, there's, you know, incest, rape, all these, all these things, they, you know, you can't, you can't just say black and white, no abortion. All those reasons are a minuscule slice of what actually happens. Yeah, those cases do happen, and they should be addressed on a case-by-case basis. But overall, eh, that's not really the case. And you have the satanic church coming out and saying, well, abortion is a sacrament. I, when I read this, when I found this, I, I was slack-jawed. You know, to come out and actually say, you know, we believe in killing kids for 
a religion. Kind of interesting. The last topic I'll talk about real fast. You can go to the next slide if you want. There you go. Open borders and human trafficking. Um, human trafficking is a growing problem. It's a worldwide problem. There's a, go to the next slide if you want to. There. Human trafficking is a $150 billion industry exceeded only by drugs and by arms sales. The worldwide estimate is that six to eight million kids go missing each year. That's a lot of people. The worldwide estimate is there's 59 million people that live in modern slavery. And this is a huge problem, and we have an open border in the South, and it, it, it's exasperating the problem, making it worse. Now, the previous, and I'm going to swerve into politics for just a second. I'm just, I'm going, to, I'm just going to graze the curb. I'm not going to stop for lunch, okay? <laughs> the, uh, the previous administration had rules in place, the DHS had rules in place, that would safeguard unaccompanied minors coming across our border, that when they, when they got them, they would hold on to them, and they would do their best to find a family member, a guardian, a friend of the family, somebody attached to that kid before the kid was released into the population. And the reason being is it's, it's a safeguard. It's a, it, you're, you're, you're making sure that kid, the best of your ability, making sure that kid doesn't fall into nefarious hands. The current administration, when they came into power, lifted all those bans. So there's no safeguard. When, when, a, when an unaccompanied minor comes across the border, there's no safeguard saying that a kid's going to wind up in a home, a good home. Uh, in fact, it's I've heard reports it's kind of like a bakery. You know, somebody walks in, so I want that one, that one, that one, and then they, they get the kid. Well, there's no logical reason to do that, except for the fact that it's a $150, $150 billion industry. That's the only reason. There's no reason. Why would you not safeguard kids? You know, why, would you, why would you go out of your way not to safeguard kids? Again, you know, well, as, as, as the church, what do you do about that? How do, you, how do you get in front of that? You can go to the next slide if you would. You know, the scripture talks about that, that not this specifically, but in generalities, you know, how terrible will it be for those who say evil is good? How terrible will it be for those who say that good is evil? How terrible for those who say that darkness is light and light is darkness? And how terrible, how terrible for those who say Bitter is sweet, and what is sweet is bitter. And we're seeing this. You know, every day on the news, you look at it, there's things that any common sense would say, that's the, that's the wrong way of doing things. But yet, we're doing it. Again, what's a Christian do about this? And, you know, what, what is our duty in all this? You go to the next slide. Ezekiel 3 18 and 19, and God says, suppose I say, say to the sinful person, you will surely die, and you do not, you do not warn them. You, 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 you do not try to get them to change their evil ways in order to save their life. Then that sinful person will, will die because they have sinned, and I will hold you responsible. This is NIV. Suppose you do warn that sinful person, 
and they do not turn away from their sin or their evil ways, then they will, they will die because of the, they have sinned, but you will be saved, but you will save yourself. So what's scripture say we do? I mean, that's pretty pointed. You know, if, if you sit back and do nothing, you're complicit. You didn't, you didn't try to stop. You didn't try to help anybody. You didn't try to help the situation. Well, I read this, and I think, well, the least you should do, or maybe the most you should, you should do, is just in conversation with people, if you, if you have the opportunity, just say, you know, I don't think that's right. You, you shouldn't do that. It shouldn't happen that way. And not be preachy, not be on your soapbox, you know, not be standing on a street corner yelling scripture at people. But just do what you can do. Just make, you know, I wouldn't say make a stand, but just say, no, I wouldn't do that. I don't believe that. Here's why. If they ask a question, you get more of a conversation, but okay, fine. But, you know, you've done, you've, you've at least said, that's not right. Yeah. Maybe you stop and give somebody pause saying, okay, maybe I'm wrong about that. You can go to the next slide if you want. James says, if anyone, knows, if any, if, if anyone then knows, good, knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, for them, it's, it's sin for them. Well, again, you know, you know what, what does a Christian do? Yeah, I'm not saying pick a fight with somebody. I'm not saying, you know, be obnoxious. Just say, hey, I don't think so. Or that shouldn't happen that way. Nothing more. You know, you could do more if you want, but I mean, you at least do the minimum. To at least, hopefully, give somebody pause. Um, and I understand there's fear involved in that. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable sometimes. But you can go to the next slide if you want. There you go. But I'm kind of encouraged. Not kind of. I am encouraged. I, I thought of this when I was getting this ready. In Second Kings, uh, in verse 9, you, well, you all know the story, but I'll, I'll, I'll fumble through this best I can. Uh, in verse 9, and by the way, I skipped verse 10. Just, it's kind of redundant, so I, I passed it over. In 2 Kings, verse 9, Elijah, a man of God, sent a message to the king of Israel. And Elisha said, try to stay away from this area or that area. Uh, Amram's army is, is going to be down there. And in verse 11, it says, all this made the, the king of Amram very angry, and he sent for his officers. And he said to them, tell me, which of you is on the side of the king of Israel? Uh, and and they, they, said, they said back to him, you are, you are a king and our master said one of the officers. None of us is on Israel's side, but Elisha is a prophet of Israel, and he tells the king of, of, of Israel even words that you speak in your bedroom. Verse 13, and Amram said, go find, go find out where he is, the king ordered, then I can send my men to capture him. Report back to me. And the officer said, he's in Dothan. And the king, the king sent horses and chariots and, and a strong army there. And they went at night and surrounded the city. The servant of the man of God got up the next morning, went out early, and he said, and he saw that the, the army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. He said, oh no, my master, the servant said, what can we do? Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those with them. And Elijah prayed, Lord, open the servant's eyes so that he can see. Then the Lord opened his eyes, and Elisha's servant looked 
upon, looked up, looked and saw the hills, and he saw that Elijah was surrounded by horses and chariots of fire. Now, I've never seen, I've never seen horses and chariots of, of fire surrounding me. Doesn't mean they're not there. If you if you if you do God's will, you're going to be protected. You may go through hard times, but you've done the right thing. And I think it's important these days, with the way the world is, that Christians have to speak up. Again, not to be obnoxious, not to be in somebody's face, just you know, just not nod when just not nod when everybody else is nodding, kind of thing. Um, if they're interested, they'll ask you. Um, the last the last slide I have, you can go to it if you want to. And we've used this, we've used this verse many times in the last few months here. Ezekiel twenty two, thirty. And I look for someone among them who could build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the, the land, so that I wouldn't have to, would not have to, would not just would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. Well, we're all asked to stand in the gap. Uh, to do your piece, yeah. You don't need to be the, the next Billy Graham or anything. You just, you know, just do your little piece. You know, just do the right thing. Um, if we look around today, I mean, evil is wide open. They're not hiding it. I mean, there's the gender stuff. I mean, it, it, yeah, a few years ago, if you talked about that sort of thing, you'd, you'd, you'd be in prison. You know, you'd get arrested for it. But now it's, 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 it's celebrated. Um, you know, it's, it's becoming harder and harder to hide behind new, nuance, Okay. You can't, there's, there's, you have less opportunity to say, well, because of this or that, I'm not going to say, well, it, it's evil. You can't deny it. And I heard, I heard someone say a line one time, and I'm going I'm to steal it. And I, well, I've, I've stolen it already. I've used it before. But someone said that large, large doors swing on small hinges, which is a neat idea, you know, the large door swings on a small hinge, so the little tiny thing you do may change the direction of something. Maybe not. You may, may not even know it. But, you know, a year, you know, down the road, months or whatever, somebody say to you, "You know, I thought about that, and you were right. I shouldn't have done that, and we should change that." I guess the the gist of this, well, and, and again to wrap this thing up, um, the passage that Gene uh, read, the uh, the call to worship. If you that that passage was written to the Israel Israel in captivity, in uh, in Babylon, and they were in a place they didn't want to be, and they were in a place they were uncomfortable. And God tells them, "This is where you're at. Do your best. I, I'm, I'm in control." And He didn't say it to them, but he knew that 70 years down the road there was going to be, be a king named Cyrus, who's going to send them back to. To Jerusalem. But his message to the, the captives then was do your best, live your life, be as happy as you can be. I got this. And I would like to think that that's what God's saying to us now. I mean, we're, we're in a place, if you study current events and study history and, study, and pay attention to things, things the, the world's in an, ugly, is in, an, it's in an ugly place right now. And there's not much you or I can actually do about it. We can't really, we can't change the direction of a country. We can't change the direction of a, a head of state. 
but we can pray about it and you can resist. And I'm not saying, you know, go out in the street and, you know, raise a ruckus. I'm just saying, you know, when, when somebody says to you, we should do this or that, no, we shouldn't do that. No, I'm not going to do that. You want to do it, go ahead, but I'm not going to do it. Just a little pushback. You know, you might be the small hinge that the, the big gate hangs on. Yeah. So that's my, that's my entire boring message for you. Uh, nobody left. I said, it's pretty good. You know. So, and I, th- I think it's important we know this stuff. And I, you know, all the, all the stuff up front about the World Economic, World Economic Forum and all that, I, I don't think the average person really pays attention to it. But that's where all this stuff is kind of, you know, they're kind of insidious infiltration of, the, kind of, the, of our society. They want to tear the, tear the fabric apart, and they're, and they're working at it. But we, you have to stand up and say, I'm not doing that, you know. Anyway, that's all I have. We'll close in prayer, and then you know, there's a, a last song, I guess. Okay. And then you guys can eat. How's that? Yeah.